0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Investors and Entrepreneurs Discussions Podcast. My name is Anna Guthrie and I'm the CEO of the UCD Student Managed Fund. We are a student-led investment club under the Investors and Entrepreneurs Society with over €25,000 in assets under management. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ronan Carr, CFA. Ronan is a BCom International with French graduate from UCD. He worked in Morgan Stanley for 16 years as an equity strategist, researching macro trends and implications for equity strategy in Europe and emerging EMEA. He also managed the European Derivative Strategy Team before assuming the role of European equity strategist and joining the global cross asset strategy team in Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Last year, Ronan joined BZero Carbon, a multidisciplinary consultancy firm focused on decarbonisation and natural capital advisory services. Now Ronan holds the role of CFO and Director of Natural Capital. Hi Ronan, thank you for joining me and it's a pleasure to have you.
1: Yeah, thanks Anna, great, great to be here by the way.
0: So you've worked as an equity strategist in London's investment banking scene for the majority of your career. I'm just interested to, to find out what sparked your interest in natural capital and the mission of B Zero Carbon.
1: So yeah, so I spent 20 years in, in investment strategy in, in investment banks um, and therefore very focused on macro, on cycles, um, et cetera. But I had always had an interest in thematic research. Um, so over the years, I you know, would look at big macro themes or style themes. And sometimes that would cut across into kind of environmental issues like water use or, or, or other elements. Um, and latterly, certainly, you know, ESG became one of the biggest, some themes, if you like, or, or a big part of the thematic agenda. Um, and I, you know, I studied for the CFA ESG investing certificate, and I was kind of orienting my career in that direction. Um, B Zero was actually started by two friends and ex-colleagues from Bank of America, and um, when I had the opportunity to join them, the, the company was focused uh, initially on decarbonisation, so working with companies to footprint and design reduction, emissions reduction strategies and, and net zero strategies. Um, and one of the kind of core philosophies of the company is to embed carbon as a line item in the kind of PL of, of a company so that you know every OpEx decision, every CapEx decision is factoring in the environmental impact and, and, and the kind of effective carbon costs. Um, but when you start to think about things that way, it's, it's quite a natural extension to thinking you know, beyond just carbon and look at the broader broader ecological effects. And so nat- the natural capital approach um, was a kind of a very natural extension. And we had the opportunity as a company to start to work with you know, other entities, particularly with the conservation sector. And we did a you know, big project with a wildlife charity in Africa doing a natural capital assessment for them. Uh, and the kind of next phase of that is to really design a, um, you know, a new a new model for them to monetize the kind of e- ecosystem service improvements that they generate through their through their conservation activities. And really what this underlined for us is that there's a there's a, a huge opportunity you know connected to natural capital in terms of new markets, new economic models. you know and ultimately we see natural capital becoming a, a huge asset class uh, over the next you know, the next few decades. So it's a very exciting opportunity and uh, you know one we're we're kind of early in the journey on effectively, but I think uh, I think it's got huge potential.
0: Yeah, thank you, Ronan. And from my understanding, so natural capital is all the assets that nature gives us for free. So you have your renewable and your non-renewable resources. Could you tell us a bit more about this and why exactly you think it's important that we account for our level of, of natural capital?
1: Yeah, so, you know, if you think about the kind of there are three major capital stocks that that kind of drive, um, drive a it, it, you know, economics and prosperity. There's the natural capital stock. There's a the produced capital stock, which is all of the material assets and infrastructure that we make. Uh, and there's human human capital stock. Um, and you know, the the problem for natural capital stock is that, as you say, a lot of the time, you know, natural capital effectively is the flows of services and benefits that nature provides us that you know help to drive um, you know wealth and prosperity and and, and economies and societies. But very often they're free of the point of view. So they, they, uh, you know, have, we have tended to overuse them <laughs> and not use them sustainably. Um, and that means they're undervalued uh, and that has led to critical declines in, in the natural capital stock and obviously climate change is one that we're very aware of, but we also see huge declines in biodiversity and, and uh, on other natural capital metrics. And, um, but this is not just an issue for you know, in, in, in theory, it's it's also a, a big risk to to the human race and, and to, to to economies, right? It's it, 40% of the world's GDP is directly linked to natural capital. Um, and, you know, we see the risks that it creates from extre- extreme weather events, from, um, you know, extreme bio- biodiversity events. This creates a risk for property values, for example, in coastal areas. You could, this will be one example, um, you know, obviously we're, all living with COVID-19 now, but there's actually been a trend in the past 20 years to, you know, increase prevalence of zoonotic diseases, diseases, you know, that came from animals. And this is also linked to habitat loss for, for biodiversity. So, you know, and all of this puts pressure, you know, over time, eventually on, on, on asset values. So there's, you know, there's a kind of an inherently um, logical reason to adopt natural capital techniques if you're, if you're interested in finance and you're interested in economics, you know, not just for because we should anyway, but because it it makes sense uh, because of the risks it represents to 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 human beings and to our own prosperity.
0: And how do you apply that theoretical concept? So from a governmental level and then on the level of a corporation, how do they take and account for their level of of natural capital and their liability to that that capital?
1: Yeah. So look, natural capital. If we maybe take a step back and, and break it down, it, it, the components of natural capital are um you know firstly there's the kind of the the resources we extract from the earth so fossil fuels and, and mined materials um then there are flows of services that are non-living so things like the power of the wind and, and solar power and then there are ecosystem services that we use so things like pollination flood management climate regulation you know air quality all of these things are, are, are services that ecosystems p- provide to us um but the, the Kind of key point about natural capital is that aside from fossil fuels and mined resources, other elements of natural capital are renewable if they're used sustainably. Um, and this is a big difference to human capital or produced capital, where you know we take it as a given that we should be reinvesting in our buildings and reinvesting in our um, you know productive capacity, uh, because if we don't, it will tend to deteriorate and eventually you know eventually a building will fall down if you leave it long enough. Um, same with human capital it's it's, we take it as a given that we should invest in in our education of our children and and in the corporate sector in education of our employees and yet we don't really reinvest in in natural capital to the same way um even though it underpins um you know our our whole economy and it's you know it's, it's it's kind of absolutely crucial to to asset values if you want to take it from an investment perspective um So we should be focusing on on that self-regenerative aspect. Are we, uh, is our consumption of ecosystem services consistent with its ability to self-regenerate? And if it isn't, we should be minimizing whatever negative impacts we have or whatever over-consumption we're we're, we're applying so that we reach that point where it's, uh, you know, where where it can self-regenerate. And that can apply at a national level or it can apply uh, at at a corporate level.
0: And do you think that from what you've seen so far in the interest in the UK, are companies coming to you to say, we want to account for our level of natural capital? Or do you think this is going to be going to be something that will have to be standardized under accounting principles? Or how are we going to get people to, to recognize this as a cost item as well?
1: Well, mean, there's a few elements, right? So I think we're at a, we're at a turning point um, in some ways in terms of you know wider societal recognition not just of climate change but of you know broader broader nature decline um and so there's a there's pressure from society and that that feeds through into into consumer demand so we see particularly in consumer sectors um you know very fast growth in products that are seen as sustainable um, and and pressure on companies to act that way um also from employees to some extent um but we also see huge pressure from from investors. Uh, so the, the the rise of ESG, um, you know, you can be cynical about it and say that it's a, you know, a lot of it is marketing, and there is an element of truth in that. Um, but the reality is that, you know, a huge chunk of the investment industry is now using ESG methods, and that means that environmental analysis is becoming embedded, uh, and ecological analysis is becoming embedded into. investment process. And so there's pressure on on corporates from their investors to start to address this issue. Um, And, you know, anyway, companies have invested interest, um, you know, for a few reasons. One is risk management. If you, you know, if you don't manage your environmental liabilities, you know, at some point, they they risk to become huge financial liabilities. Um, So think about, you know, obvious examples like BP with a Deepwater Horizon spill or Volkswagen with with dieselgate but you know a lot of the big if you look at the the major ESG controversies they're often associated with enormous losses in market cap right so it's you know it's a risk management issue to just ignore your ecolog your environmental impacts um and it's a cost of capital impact you know going back to the ESG point of you know we we start to see more and more evidence that companies with very poor ESG scores um you know are are punished in terms of share price performance and and in terms of their valuations so companies with with that are that are progressive in terms of the environmental agenda can get a lower cost of capital so companies have a have a vested interest Um, and i think the key thing for a company is first of all to to account you know so to be transparent to you know do as accurate as possible footprinting of your impact and and and, and you know create that data and then once you have good data on your footprint you can start to manage it
0: going back to the, the ESG point there so so in the SMF this year we've tried to put more focus on ESG analysis within our equity research and I worry about how accurate this how accurate the key performance indicators are for especially the environmental aspect of ESG um in industry I think a lot of a lot of banks and, and asset managers have their own ESG ratings and methods of ratings. And you know there's constant pressure from investors for companies to meet these ratings. Um, so I'm just wondering, can you see manipulation for perhaps key performance indicators regarding natural capital um, as businesses face more pressure to comply and that maybe something similar will happen?
1: Yeah, look, there's no doubt that ESG data is, is imperfect. Um, I mean, I just read yesterday uh, from a, a UK stockbroker, uh, an article, a blog article saying that, you know, they reckon Glencore and British American Tobacco are, are, are two of the top five ESG rated companies in the FTSE, which is just, just ludicrous, you know, I mean, um, but part of the problem is, is, um, is, you know, how do you define your metrics? And some of the largest ESG data providers, um, you, know, cr- you know, create their scores on a relative basis. So if you're the if you're the mining company that's doing a little bit more, then you'll score higher. and so you you get a good rating. but it doesn't mean you don't you're not creating huge environmental or ecological liabilities. Um, and so there is more work to do on the ESG data side, and and you know we shouldn't take uh, you know an ESG score um, uh, with as the gospel truth, uh, far, far from it. it's it's you know, it's a data point. Um, and frankly, the same thing applies with financial accounts. You know, we don't you know we do kind of de facto take the financial accounts as being truthful, but you know, why is there a whole investment industry? Why is there a whole equity research industries? Because you you need to interrogate those accounts to find out where you know where 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 are problems potentially being hidden or where are you know trends being masked and, and sometimes even frauds. Um, and the same will apply to, to environmental data. Um, and look, there's a lot of there's a lot of work in this space. You know, it's a it's a fast growing sector, the ESG data sector, with lots of new entrants and lots of new approaches. Um, and, you know, I think we'll we'll continue to see that happening. Uh, and, you know, I, I think the data will get better. But, it you know, again, it, it will need to continue to need to be interrogated. Um, there is a broader trend, actually, towards non-financial reporting becoming more more embedded. Um, and you might have seen actually that the International Accounting Standards Board, or are, are even even have an initiative to to develop a an alternative set of standards focused on sustainability and and, and you know including environmental issues, and similarly some of the big, you know ESG initiatives um, uh, are also collaborating on. On developing kind of coordinated standards around non-financial reporting. So whether in the in the investment sector or in the corporate sector, I think we're going to continue to see, um, you know, standardisation and improvements in in the in the metrics for for non-financial reporting. And personally, I think it will become, you know, de facto requirement. Even if governments don't don't demand it, I think investors will eventually demand it. So uh, yeah, it, there's more to do. Um, but there is a lot of work being done on standardisation, and, and generally the pressure from from consumers and from investors is for more transparency, which allows for more scrutiny. So I, I think we'll we'll you know we will see the data getting better, and, and I think as well technology technology plays a role here. You know the the ability to use remote sensing and AI and and you know other techniques is you know will also feed into this.
0: It's exciting times, and I'm, I'm very interested to see how, how it develops over the next few years. And especially when it comes down to something I find hard to get my head around is how we measure accurately our natural capital assets. So I presume this is done through satellite technology, or is it is it an area? It's obviously an area that's, that's constantly improving. There's constantly new improvements. I just want to get your thoughts on how you think we can do this. And should it be on a national scale? Should it be on a global scale or a local scale?
1: Yeah, I mean all of the above, really. So there are already standards uh, or frameworks that have been developed, um, both at the corporate level and at the national level. The UN has a system of environmental economic accounting, which is a framework for for countries to adopt. Um, the, the Natural Capital Protocol is, a, is an initiative um, for co- companies, and they're they're developing frameworks in different sectors to be able to account for for ecological impacts uh, on the corporate side yeah, in general, the approach is to um, you know measure ecological effects, so you know ecological quantums or ecological changes, uh, and then to try and apply a value to them. Um, and it is not an exact science uh, how how you value those, but there are there are ways you can do it. You can look at you know what's their contribution to to downstream value creation in in different industries you know if if they weren't there what would the value be right um, you know if you didn't have you didn't have a coral reef you know protecting a coastline um you know what would the coastal damage be you know is that the value or is that part of the value of that coral reef for example and there so there's techniques uh, like that um and these frameworks are are you know are already there and they and they continue to be continue to be developed and i think will will continue to improve and and going back to the non financial reporting point i think there's a lot of work being done, um, particularly in, in the corporate sector, to to address this point. Um, and I think the more initiatives we see, the more it it you know throws a spotlight uh, on, on 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 these things. There's one actually really good one, uh, which Harvard Business School undertook, which is called the Impact Weighted Accounts um, Initiative. And they effectively they 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 did an analysis for all the large listed companies globally. Looking at their environmental impacts and, and applying a, a financial value to them, and what you end up with is a, an effective environmental liability created uh, for every every listed company. Um, and then you can do some really cool analysis. You can, you know, I looked at, you know, looking at the the aggregate total and, and compared to the net profits of the global stock market, and it was this liability was higher, and about five percent of market cap. And um, so imagine in the next few years as this type of analysis gets embedded into you know, into financial analysis. And you can see that it's very, it's very quick afterwards to differentiate between the companies that are um, creating large negative impacts. Even if the data is 10% wrong, you know, you, you can still see where the differentiation is within sectors. And uh, I think that ability to, that transparency and that ability to scrutinize data is, is only going to get get better.
0: So for those of you who might know, uh, Dieter Helm is the chair of the UK's Natural Capital Committee. It's the first natural capital committee in the world. And he emphasizes the natural capital aggregate rule with the aim of the maintenance of the aggregate level of natural capital, which involves paying economic rents for the depletion of that level. So Ronan, I'm curious to find out how exactly a corporation who's creating a negative impact can offset that loss. Is it through a conservation project or you know, where and how could they compensate
1: yeah look i think the the, the philosophy that that a company should adopt uh, or indeed anybody is uh, one one framework i like is the mitigation hierarchy which is a, a concept used in in project development uh, and the, the logic there is that when you develop a project you should be aiming for you know no net loss of biodiversity or indeed a, a net gain ideally um, but the way to achieve that is not to just compensate for negative impacts uh, in the first instance. Rather, you start off by first avoiding negative impacts as much as possible. Um, where you can't avoid them, you minimize them as much as possible. Where once you've minimized them, you look to remediate or restore those impacts you know, in, in that local area. Um, and only then do you consider a compensation scheme or an offset scheme. Um, and so that's not to say that offsetting doesn't have a role. Uh, I, I think it does. I don't think we can get to net zero, for example, without having some element of, uh, of compensation schemes or offsets. But, you know, even when, when we look at offsets, it's, it's also a question of, um, you know, are they the right type of offsets and are are those offsets truly delivering? Uh, one thing we're doing as B0 is, um, you know, trying to really turn the offset market on its head. And we've, we've invented a, you know, one of the first ratings frameworks for, for voluntary carbon offsets. Um, so effectively we want to provide like the, the, the Moody's or S&P ratings for, for offsets. And this means that you can uh, interrogate different, different projects um, ultimately to see how effective they are because the problem historically has been that lots of uh, offset projects really don't deliver on the kind of emissions removals or emissions avoidance that, that they say they do. Um, so look, I think you, you adopt that mitigation hierarchy um your your first port of call is is minimizing your emissions or minimizing your negative impacts um and uh, and only at, as a last resort if you like it's 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 using offsetting um but it has a role to play but it's not it's not the only or and certainly not the first port
0: of call and do you think that say the, the, the carbon emissions trading scheme and perhaps the offsetting can create this kind of acceleration of depletion of our non-renewable resources. So saying, we recognize that oil and gas are non-renewable, they're going to be used up, we might as well use them up now and not necessarily make any impact. Um, what what it, What's your thought on that?
1: Well, I think when it comes to fossil fuels, you're not just consuming uh, a non-renewable resource, you're actually, in addition to that, you're creating a liability by you know, contributing to greenhouse gas emissions. So uh i yeah I d i don't think you know and in fact if you and if you were to try and compensate for that you you know you'd uh at a kind of at a macro level it's it's not even possible right if uh you know if we maintain a business as usual level of emissions um but uh, but try and offset everything there's just not enough land to to make that possible and it would have all kinds of perverse effects on uh you know, on food prices and, 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 and the like um, and this is the criticism of some of the oil companies that they have these net zero targets but they they're actually planning to increase um oil and gas production over the over the over the next 10 years and uh and so i think it's not good enough just to be net zero you need to be showing that you're you know go back to the mitigation hierarchy you need to be showing that you're actually reducing uh your, your negative impacts before you're you're looking to offset um so so yeah so i think it's it's a uh, uh I don't think it will be a race to to you know consume the the last resources because that's that's kind of runs completely contrary to, to the whole natural capital philosophy actually. Uh, contrary to the idea of you know restoring natural capital stock to a level where it's it's healthy and 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 and, and is self-regenerative.
0: And how can you see this being implemented in kind of developing countries? So what has fueled our development over the past century is, you know, the exploitation of oil and gas. Why should these developing countries develop in a in a different way and take a different philosophy to their development?
1: Well, I think for the for the emerging countries or for the for poorer countries, um, you know, they 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 should have the right to develop absolutely, and and to they have a right to become more prosperous too. Um, but you know, it, it is in their own interest often to. To look at things with a natural capital perspective, and to you know uh, achieve that prosperity in a way that that doesn't destroy the natural environment. Um, if you're looking at health outcomes, well-being outcomes, um, you know it, it's in their interest to 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 do the right thing in a way. Um, but you know the developed world has a role to play here too. I mean, first of all, they have to developed countries need to get their own house in order. Um, uh, but secondly, you know, when when we see aid flows or when we see, um, uh, you know, the developed world helping the emerging world, then I think we can link it to e- ecological outcomes. And we've seen some very successful initiatives uh, already in, in this type of direction. You know, one was in the Seychelles where there was a negotiation around debt forgiveness for that government. Um, and What ended up was what was effectively a debt for nature swap that debts, bilateral and multilateral debts at the government level were were, were written down or forgiven in return for meeting uh, ecological outcomes, particularly related to protecting the marine marine ecosystems around the Seychelles, which are some of the most biodiverse in the world and and also have huge positive impact in terms of their uh, contribution to carbon sequestration and, and other things. Um, and so, those types of mechanisms, I think, are very clever uh, because they they can uh, they can help the emerging countries or poorer countries, um, but but while also achieving uh, ecological outcomes that are that are positive for those countries, but also for the world.
0: It's exciting to to watch that over the next few years, and hopefully it will will continue. Um, so, my my sec to kind of wrap up. I'm more interested in in hearing about how private investors are going to to fuel this change as well. So you talked about um, natural capital as emerging as as one of the largest asset classes in in the next couple of decades, in the next decade, few decades. Um, I think HSBC have recently launched a a billion dollar fund for natural capital. Do you think this is, and I, I think they've diversified into agriculture and biofuels. Do you think there's more, room for diversification in this in these types of funds and do you think there's going to be growing uh, investor appetite
1: yeah so 100% so i think we've seen of the huge growth in the kind of broader responsible investment uh, universe i think if you look at the the un principles of responsible investment which is a kind of umbrella umbrella body for asset managers and asset owners um, and the all of the signatories to those principles um, their assets under management now are equivalent to about half the size of the global bond and equity market. So, responsible investing in, in the broader sense is really kind of mainstream uh, already in the investment industry, and we see the the fund flows from consumers, you know, are, are huge into the ESG space. Um, and you know, at the leading edge of that, I think you have impact investing, uh, which is you know investing for uh, typically, it's, it's investment vehicles that are targeting both a financial return and uh, some kind of non-financial return. So it could be social capital investing or, or natural capital investing. And then there's a growing niche uh, at the kind of uh, within impact investing around around natural capital. So the the HSBC Pollination Fund you mentioned is probably the biggest one, but there's there's been a, f- a few others just in the past year as well. And I think that niche will will definitely continue to grow, partially fueled by by invest, you know, consumer investor demand. And certainly millennials, all the surveys suggest that they uh, their interest is in is in investing not just in ESG but in you know focused on on kind of you know, multi- multi-capital perspective, not just financial capital returns, but but you know, other benefits too. But actually it's it's not just you know, it's not just individuals anymore. You know, the the pension industry is really moving in this direction. Uh, after all, pension schemes are, you know, running money on behalf of individuals too. Um, and regulation is 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 a you know, it plays a little bit of a role, but I think a lot of it is happening from the bottom up. Um, so I do, I, I I truly believe it will become a major asset class, and. Um, uh, yeah, and I think it's here to stay, definitely.
0: Yeah, that's great. And even we we see in UCD and you know, in our own group in the SMF, you know, we do want to make a change and something that we've decided to invest in renewable only companies. There's no oil and gas in our investment universe. We're trying to put that focus on ESG, and the you know people are interested. And I'm really happy to see that the uh, that it's been taken up well uh, amongst our own peer group. And um, so I guess this ties in to, to the final question, you know in my finance curriculum so far, I haven't necessarily come across the concept of natural capital. And I, after talking to a few of my friends in in finance masters as well, it's not really a big topic that they're covering. Do you think this is going to be a problem and we should be producing more environmentally aware graduates, not necessarily carbon aware?
1: Yes, definitely. I I think, you know, this type of natural capital approach or the kind of, interface between ecology and economics and ecology and finances uh is becoming more important and it should that should be reflected in in academic finance absolutely and i think it will actually frankly um uh uh, you know for a few reasons one is if we look at we've been talking about esg a lot if you look at financial markets it's you know it's 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 a mainstream element within within the financial markets so so that's that's one reason secondly non-financial reporting what i've talked about before as well you know as that develops and becomes a core part of the CFO's job. Um, you know, this this agenda is moving out of the kind of sustainability department into the CFO's office, uh, and that's another reason why finance should should reflect that. And as I said, it's it, it will become a really important asset class. There will be new new economic models, new markets associated with it. And uh, you know, again, fi- academic finance should absolutely be be facilitating that and then helping it develop.
0: And hopefully that will be happening over the next few years as well. Ronan, it was such a pleasure to have you and thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much. Great to be here.